0: If I haven't um, met any of you yet this morning, my name is Steve and I'm one of the pastors here and I guess it's my turn to, uh, uh, it's my, it's my t- time in the service and if if you're just joining us, we are in the gospel of John and John is in the New Testament, which is like the last third of your Bibles. Uh, the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John's a pretty big book. It's like 21 chapters, 20 chapters. Um, if you just flip through, you should be able to find John. Um, don't get it confused with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are closer to the end. But we are in John chapter 3 this morning. Um, and and we're actually going to be starting at the very end of John chapter 2. And over the last several weeks, what we've been seeing is that John, uh, the 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 Apostle John has been trying to make a case for us, and that's the case that he's going to make throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the promised one who is coming to restore all things to the way God originally intended it for us. He's the one that's going to come and do away with the curse. He's going to be the one that comes and do away with all of the problems in our hearts and, and sin and the brokenness of this world. And, and one of the things that John has been presenting is that Jesus is ushering in a new age. As the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's been ushering in a new age in him, this messianic age. Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, or last week, we saw that, uh, that Jesus is also going to be building a new temple. He's, he's doing away with, like, temple worship. He's fulfilling everything that the temple was pointing towards, and he's creating a new people, a new house that, that the New Testament calls the church. And in our text this morning, we're going to see that all of those things are only possible if, if we experience another new thing, and it's the new birth, um, Jesus is going to tell us in this passage, and he's going to be talking to a guy by the name of Nicodemus, and he's going to be telling Nicodemus that um, with all of your assumptions about what it takes to be accepted by God, Nicodemus, um, there's, there's something that you need to understand is that you need to have a new birth or in jesus terms you need to be born again if you're older like like my age or or older like you know that that term born again was like driven into the ground like in the 70s i think it was in 80s like and i think it's kind of lost some of its meaning but jesus is saying like in order to enter the kingdom of god you need to have a completely new beginning you need to be born again you know, and it's interesting because he's talking to Nicodemus, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but Nicodemus was a guy who, had, who was a really religious guy. In fact, he was a teacher of the Jews, and he had all sorts of assumptions about what it was going to, what God accept, um, expected of him. And what Jesus is going to do is he tells him this, is, is that, you know what, Nicodemus, like, what's required to enter in the kingdom of God is something completely unexpected, completely outside of your ability to perform it's the new birth. You have to be born again. I think it's really important for us um, this morning. And I'm kind of sad that the youth are, are gone this morning for the retreat because I think this, this really relates to them. But if you've grown up, like all of us probably are showed up here at some point, like you're here at your church you're in Sunday morning. So all of you have probably some assumptions about what it is that God expects of you and what God wants from you and what it's going to take for you to be accepted by God. And one of the things that this text is, the thing that this text is telling us is to be accepted by God, you need to experience a new birth. All the religious stuff that you can do isn't going to cut it. All of like a church attendance isn't going to cut it. You need to have something miraculous happen to you, and it's a new birth. So whatever your assumptions are this morning, like Nicodemus arrived to talk to Jesus. We're just going to see this conversation between, between the two of them. Nicodemus arrived to talk to Jesus with all sorts of assumptions, and Jesus confronted him with the truth, and it, like, shook Nicodemus's world, and it's the same truth we're going to be confronted with this morning. Like, if whatever you think it is that that God requires of you, it's that you have to experience a new birth, and, and um, I'm not, I don't really have an outline this morning because it's just this con- this rolling conversation, um, so why don't, I, why don't you just stand with me? We'll read the first part of the text. I'm actually going to start at, in chapter 2, verse 23, and read through, I think, verse 5, or verse 3, I guess. And then, um, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into the text. This is John chapter 2, starting at verse 23. This is God's word for his church. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to to witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the work of Jesus Christ that allows, um, that makes the new birth possible. And um, I would just ask that your word would go forward this morning, um, that we would love Jesus more because of what he's accomplished for us, and that if there's anyone here who hasn't experienced new life in him, that you would open their eyes um, to understand their need for him and that they would, they would just confess their sin and come to him and, and experience new life. For pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we get into the end of chapter 2 there, the reason why we started there is that that's really connected with what we're talking about this morning. If you remember, if you were here last week, you know, Jesus was in Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover and he cleansed the temple. And apparently Jesus hung out in Jerusalem for a while longer um, because, and during the feast, and he he apparently did more signs. It says that as people were beholding the signs that he he was doing, which were miraculous works that Jesus did that were pointing towards a deeper reality of who he was, it says that many people believed in his name. But then there's this curious thing that John says, but Jesus on his part wasn't entrusting himself to them. Like, he didn't reciprocate to them. Because, John tells us, he knew, what does it say? For he knew all men because he knew what was in them. Like, what John's telling us is there's a kind of faith and there's a kind of belief in Jesus that, that, um, that we can have that's simply a superficial belief that doesn't really move us into that place of saving faith. Like, all these people were seeing miracles, and they were believing at some level in Jesus as this one who did miracles, but their belief wasn't being... Jesus wasn't reciprocating to him because he knew what was in man. In fact, that what that points out to us is that there's a, there's a deeper problem in, than, than what we say and what we do. The deeper problem is what's within us, is what's within our hearts. And unless that internal part of us gets fixed we're in a world of hurt no matter how religious we are. And that's what brings us to this situation with Nicodemus. Look what it says about Nicodemus. Now there was a man, chapter 3, verse 1, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus, it says, was a Pharisee. And if you're not familiar with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the most like serious and like sober-minded religious folks in the nation of Israel. They were the ones that that they were going to keep every rule they were going to and they, in fact, they even made up rules so that they were making sure they were keeping all the rules and you, you didn 't get anybody more religious than Nicodemus. he was doing all of the right things from everybody 's perspective, and in fact, he must have been good at it because it says that he was a ruler of the Jews, so he was so good at it, he was respected, he was a ruler, most likely that meant that he was sitting on the sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the people of Israel at that point in time. So Nicodemus was a religious guy who was doing all the right things, who was being respected by everybody around him. And what John is presenting to us, and he's, a, he's like a prototype of these kind of people that were at the end of chapter 2 that had an acknowledgment of Jesus but no true saving faith. And he comes to Jesus, and it says to us that he came to him by night. It's an interesting statement. Because like at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John talks about how Jesus is the light of the world and how Jesus came into this world as the true light, as, as life for all men. And as the one who gives life, he's the light of all men. And, and Nicodemus, on one hand, is coming to Jesus, who is the light of the world, we learn from chapter one, in the middle of the night. So it kind of begs a question, like, why is Nicodemus coming to Jesus? Is he coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness so that no one would see like what he was doing, so that his deeds would be concealed from those around him? Or was he coming to Jesus to come out of darkness into the light because he believed that Jesus was the light of the world who gives life to all men? Kind of starts off with this question and, and it starts off with a little ominous tone because we've heard of these Pharisees before and we've heard of like the ruling party of the Jews. And every time those guys come, they're 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 not really seeking Jesus honestly. They're always seeking to kind of like like undermine him and question him and question his work. They did that with John the Baptist. They did that when he cleansed the temple. So we start off like kind of wondering, like, what's Nicodemus's story here? Is he coming out of darkness? into light or is he coming under the cover of darkness to like see who jesus is so that his deeds would be concealed that's the question that we begin with and and listen what he says he says and he came to him by night verse two and he says rabbi so he shows Jesus' respect. First of all, Jesus hadn't been trained in any official religious school, but he acknowledges him as a teacher. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He, he gives Jesus his deduction. Like, hey, we, and I'll get back to that in a little minute, like we've been looking on at all these things that you've been doing, like, and we've concluded that nobody could do the miracles that you do unless God was with him. There's not even a question in there. It's like Nicodemus is just showing up, having this conversation with Jesus, and, and being pretty nice. He's being considerate, and he's making a deduction about who Jesus is, and the fact that God must be with him because of the miracles. Do you guys see that? Unless God is with him. Well, Jesus' response to him in verse 3 is really interesting, because he doesn't respond to him, he doesn't seem to acknowledge that statement at all, at least on the surface. But Jesus sets up his, other, his own deduction. His own unless statement. Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, there's the unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's some parallels there between Jesus' statement and Nicodemus' statement. Nicodemus is saying like, hey, we've deduced based on your miracles that God must be with you. And Jesus, without even acknowledging that, gives his own. He says, well, you might have made a correct deduction about me and about the fact that I've come from God. But have you made the right deduction about what's required for you, Nicodemus, to to go to God, to enter into the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God? Are you thinking the right way? You've made a deduction about me, but what about you? Have you made the right deduction about what God requires for you to enter and see the kingdom of God? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, You must be born again. You must experience a new birth. You must have a completely like do over. You mulligan the first life and you start the second one, right? Like, you must be born again. Now, the the challenging thing here is that I think a lot of us, again, we come with assumptions, and Nicodemus was being a nice guy. And he, he acknowledged who Jesus was. And yet Jesus is saying, like Nicodemus, like that's great, but you're falling short because you haven't been born again. Like something is, something's not going on here. You, you acknowledge things, and you're even being nice. And I think that's what oftentimes, like a lot of people show up in churches. I think maybe some of you are here this morning to think, as long as I acknowledge who Jesus is, or I, I acknowledge that God exists, and I come and I'm a nice guy, or a nice woman and I do nice things and I try to be nice or you could substitute sincere. As long as I'm sincere and nice and acknowledge Jesus at some level, it's exactly what Nicodemus was doing. I must be okay. You know, uh, Michael Lawrence, who's a pastor up in Portland, um, he said this about, uh, I think it was a great quote and, and somewhat humorous. He says, these days there are lots of different kinds of nice There's the polite but detached tolerance of live and let live nice. There's the socially conscious and politically engaged nice. There's religious nice in many different denominational and faith community forms. There's the spiritual but not religious nice. There's even what's known as Portland nice. It's it's sort of non-confrontational, let's not make you feel uncomfortable even though we're silently judging you and dismissing you in our minds Nice doesn't really have anything to do with my sermon. But, but you, I, I bet you, all of us could be categorized in there somewhere. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, like, like, this has nothing to do with it. You acknowledging something about me and trying to be respectful isn't going to cut it, Nicodemus. There's something that needs to happen, and it's something that, that goes beyond what you can accomplish. You need to experience new life. Nicodemus' response, verse 4. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And it just shows Nicodemus is like still kind of just dealing with things on an earthly level. Maybe he's being a little dismissive of Jesus. Like, really, dude? Like, what do you expect me to do? Like, go back to my mom, crawl back up into her womb, and like, get reborn? Like, that's impossible. So either Nicodemus is completely like just superficial or he's being dismissive of Jesus. But then Jesus responds to him again with this truly, truly statement, verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus just doubles down, and what he says is like, truly, truly, Nicodemus, pay attention to this. And what he says is something that Nicodemus is immediately going to like start associating as a teacher of the law when he says, unless you are born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now there's lots of debate about what Jesus is talking about there, but I think it's pretty clear as you like start to take into account the, like the totality of scriptures. In Nicodemus's mind, the language of water and spirit in the kingdom of God would have, would have probably directed his mind back to Ezekiel 36. And I have it up on the screen. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 says this. It says, and, and the context of this is that God's promising like, that he's going to act once again on behalf of his people and he's going to restore his people to, his, to their land. He's going to restore his people to his kingdom. And he says, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It continues, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is like, Nicodemus, like this moment that Ezekiel prophesied about is upon you. He says, and and he says, I, and, and it's this amazing promise. He says, I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and all of your idols. If they could just breathe that in for a second. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness. It's what Mark talked about before communion, that if, if, if you don't show up here with an awareness of your filthiness, maybe you're like Nicodemus and your standard of what God wants is way too low. But this promise that's available in, in Christ, as we're going to discover, is that he will cleanse you from all your filthiness. All that stuff that sits in the back of your head, all that stuff that like, brings condemnation upon you, all of that stuff that, that makes you feel unworthy to even like, gather with God's people to worship, he's going to sprinkle clean water on you, and he will cleanse you from all your idolatry, every single thing that you put in your life is more important than God himself. And think about this promise. God's people are made up of what? The filthy idolaters of this world that have been cleansed by the working of the Spirit of God. He says, Nicodemus, unless... Your problem, Nicodemus, goes way deeper than just those things that you do. It goes to the core of your heart. He says, and not only am I going to cleanse you from your filthiness and I'm going to cleanse you from your idolatry, he says, but, but I'm going to remove your heart of stone. That's what it said in Ezekiel. And I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Like your heart that was just dead to the things of God, that was dead to the spiritual things is going to be removed, and because of the work of the Spirit of God in your life, you're going to have a living and beating heart, and your affections are going to change. And then he went on to say, and you'll be careful to observe my statutes and my ordinances, those things that give you life. Like, your motivations will change, your desires will change, your, um, all those things that you long for will change, and you'll want to obey the Lord. And then you will dwell in the land. You'll, you'll receive those things that God's promised. And, and he will be your God and you will be his people. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need that. You don't need a more religious stuff to do. You need me to take away your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh so that you change from the inside out. And he goes on and um, and then he says in verse 6, it's an absolute necessity, Nicodemus, because look what he says in verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, if you never experience the spiritual like, rebirth, this birth of the Spirit, you are just fleshly. You are bound to the things of this world. You are bound to like, live in what this world is bound by. And like this world, you just sit in darkness, Nicodemus. And what we're going to find out, you'll be sitting in judgment if you're just flesh. But if you want to be spiritual, if you want to have spiritual life, if you want to see, like, the kingdom of God, you need to be born of the Spirit. Then he continues in verse 7. He says, don't marvel at I say you must be born again. Like, you might be like, well, how do you know? Like, where do you see? Like, you know, Jesus is like, no, no, no. And he uses the illustration of the wind in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What he's saying was, when the Spirit of God's at work, you don't really, you can't really see what he's going to be doing next. You don't know where he's come from, where he's going, but the Spirit moves. But when the Spirit of God gives somebody rebirth, you see its effects. You don't know where he's come from, where he's going, but you, what does it say? Yeah but you see its effects on those that are born, right? Like you don't know where it's coming, but you know when it blows by. So there's, he said there's going to be some signs when somebody is born again. And, and one of the key ones that you see from Ezekiel 36 is that a person receives a new heart. I think I've, I've talked about this. Like years ago, a person came to faith here at Creekside, and their life was kind of a train wreck. and um, And... I met with them a week after they had come to faith and I was like, hey, how's it going? Oh, this is terrible. And I'm like, why is it terrible? And they're like, Well, I used to do all this stuff like that I did, and I felt totally okay about it. And now I'm doing all this stuff that brings wreckage to my life, and I feel guilty all the time. You know what that means? Like his dead heart of stone changed, and he has a heart of flesh, and now he understands like what God desires and his affections change, and as his life changed, he began to experience more and more life in Jesus Christ, but it, it wasn 't the other way around it wasn 't that he cleans himself up first, like from week one to week two, nothing in his life externally had changed, but his heart had changed. He had a new heart that was beating instead of just the dead heart of stone. And, and th- now he had this like genuine conviction of sin that brought him to Christ, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. And his life began to change. You don't know where it's going, but you can see the effects of it. And then Nicodemus, in verse 9, asks Jesus another question. Well, how can these things be? How how can I participate in this new life in the Spirit? How can I be born again? Like, up to this point, Jesus hasn't said anything about how it's happened. He just said it needs to happen. Something miraculous needs to happen to you, or else none of it makes any difference. Like, it's completely unexpected from this religious guy that thought it was all up to him. Jesus is saying, no, it's really not up to you. It's up to the working of the Spirit of God. And then he says, okay, how? How can this be? And Jesus answered, and I think that Jesus is going to poke fun at him here a little bit. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do you not understand these things? Like, really? And then he says this, truly I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. He begins talking in the plural, but it's just Jesus and Nicodemus here. In fact, he switches back to uh, singular in verse 12, if I told you earthly things... But if you remember when Nicodemus showed up to talk to Jesus, hey, we acknowledge that, that uh, nobody could do these signs unless God is with him. What was Nicodemus doing? Like, he's hiding behind this, like, this we thing. Right? I remember, like, there's lots of times when I teach, like, Bible studies and stuff, and, and I, when I'm talking application, people are like, it's just in our nature. I'm not making fun of anybody here. It's just in our nature. Like, when we start to apply it, like, well, we always do this as people, and sometimes I'll even say, like, oh, stop saying we. Like, like, say I, right? Because it's not about all of you. It's about me and my relationship with the Lord. And when Nicodemus showed up, he's showing up at night. Nobody knows he's there. He's being all secretive. And then he starts talking we. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, oh, well, we, we know some things too, Nicodemus. <laughs> and, he's, and then he says this. Verse 11 We speak what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. What he's saying is like, you know, Nicodemus, you made some deductions based on your observations about my miracles, but like I am speaking to you because I've seen the reality. I know it completely. And I'm speaking to you as an eyewitness to these things, and you won't believe me. And he goes on, he keeps making that point. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Like Nicodemus, you're not completely getting, you're still stuck on this superficial earthly level. How are you going to believe when I tell you the things that I've really seen and I've really experienced? And he goes on, verse 13, and no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the son of man. That son of man is a a term that Jesus gave himself. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, like, I have authority to speak to you about heavenly things because I've been there. And I have seen it. All that you've seen is a bunch of earthly stuff and you don't get it. So you should listen to me, Nicodemus, because I have come down from heaven. You haven't gone up there. You don't know what you're talking about. And then he makes this great illustration. And as Moses, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, a lot of you probably aren't familiar with that story, but in the, in the book of Numbers, uh, what had happened is the people of Israel started whining and complaining against Moses and against God, and they were like, ah, we should have stayed back in Egypt, like, this sucks out here. And... And so God sent these fiery serpents among their, in their camp and, and the fiery serpents were biting people and then they were dying from these fiery serpents. And then they finally come to this point where the people of Israel are like, oh, we acknowledge our sin, like intercede for us, Moses, so that we can be saved from these serpents. And this is what happens. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that whoever, that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live." So what what what's going on there? Is this this beautiful picture? Because the serpent had come to become to embody like everything that this curse has brought upon the world. Like in the garden, it was the serpent that deceived the first. Like the first man and the first woman, it was the serpent who caused like this curse to fall over the world, like cosmically. Here in the desert, it was the serpent that was embodying this curse and was bringing death upon the people of Israel. And as they lived under the burden of that curse, they finally are like, okay, we've sinned. Intercede for us, Moses. We need an intercessor and we need a provision like to deliver us from the bite of the serpent. So God tells Moses, okay, make a replica of the serpent, put it on a stake, and put it up in the camp. And when anybody's bitten by the serpent, if they look to the stake, the serpent on the stake, they will live. And Jesus says, you know what, Nicodemus, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in in him have eternal life. Think about that for a second. On that stake was the embodiment of the curse. And when they looked to it, they gave life. And what, what Jesus is saying, you know what, Nicodemus, the son of man, and in this context of the son of man coming in heaven and, and ascending to heaven, it was this clear reference to, to the, the coming king who's going to rule over all the nations from Daniel chapter 7. I don't think Nicodemus would have missed that. We don't have time to go there this morning. But he says, when you, with, with the, one day the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a stake. He's going to be hanging there. He's going to be like, embodying the curse that has fallen upon this world. And when you look at him in faith and believe in him, you'll live. This new life in the Spirit comes through like believing in Jesus, the one who was cursed on a stake for us. In fact, the book of Galatians says that. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 3, I think. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. So he's telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this coming king that's going to rule over the world, this son of man, one day he's going to be lifted up on a stake. He's going to, be, he's going to become a curse for you. Everything, that, all of the shame and filthiness and idolatry and everything that you've done will be placed upon him. And if you look to him in faith, if you believe that he's the one that paid for it all, you will live. The new birth is a possibility, Nicodemus. And it's through the Son of Man being lifted up and being killed. And then he says this. He speaks, to, he not only speaks to the possibility of like the new birth, but he speaks to God's motivation in it. Look at what he says, verse 16. This is probably the most, second most familiar verse in all of the Bible. In the Football season. I haven't seen anybody in football games lately holding John three sixteen up. Anybody seen that on TV? They're in field goals. Bunch of heathen. Um, God's motivation: For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He's saying, Nicodemus, this son of man being put up on the stake and bearing the curse for humanity is motivated out of God's like overwhelming, unbelievable love for humanity that caused him to give his only begotten son. There was nothing more dear to God that he could have given. And he gave his son to die on the stake so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Nicodemus, God loves you so deeply that he's going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He's going to bear your curse so that you could receive the promised new life in the Spirit by faith. Speaks again to God's motive, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. God's motive in sending Jesus, Jesus' motive in coming in this world, isn't judgment. It's salvation. Like he has come to bring salvation. And every time you proclaim the gospel, you're proclaiming the good news that salvation is possible. That new life is possible. That, that removing of your filthiness and your idolatry is possible. If you believe in Jesus. The, it's not just a temporary snake bite that you're being delivered from, but it's from the of the serpent that you're being delivered from. The one that's going to take you to the grave if you don't. In fact, he speaks to that urgency. Look what he says. He who, verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. What Jesus is saying here is that Nicodemus, if you believe in the Son of God, if you look in the eyes of complete trust and reliance upon the one who took the curse for you, you will escape judgment. You will not be judged. And if you don't, you're already judged. What Jesus is saying is this world lies under judgment. And the only way out of that judgment is through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you just decide to like try to ride the fence, like there is no like middle ground. Either you're in this world and you sit under judgment and you sit under the powers of darkness, or you trust in Jesus Christ and you're delivered from the judgment. But don't think you can play the middle. Don't think that being like nice and sincere and religious is going to save you, Nicodemus. You can't play the middle. You either are in judgment or you're out of judgment. There's an urgency here to the statement of Jesus. You need to make a decision, Nicodemus. Everything relies upon it. There is no middle ground. You either remain in judgment with the rest of this world or you escape it, verse 19. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. He says when, when Jesus comes into this world, he's like light coming into this world, and, and all of those people whose affections are still on the things of this world, like scurry away, because they love the darkness more than the light. That's why you need this transformed heart, Nicodemus. You know, in... And that takes all sorts of forms, right? Like, it can take re- these religious self-righteous forms. Like, we just want to be, like, we're so proud that we think that we can somehow, like, earn God's favor. Or it takes this, like, atheistic form, like, oh, there is no, like, God, I'm God. So I don't need to answer to anybody. Or it can take, like, just kind of rebellious, like, ah, forget it, I can never be good enough anyway, so I might as well just, Right? This is judgment. The light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. If if God turns you over to your own affections and your own desires and leaves you there, you're just going to remain in darkness. Verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's really interesting that this ends this way because it began with Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the darkness. And it's like Jesus is circling back around to speak to Nicodemus about what his motives were. He says, well, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Nicodemus, are you coming to me because you really think I'm the source of light and you want me to show like where you've fallen short? So that, like, I can shine light on that, so that you can experience new life, so that you can, like, actually do something that matters? Or are you just coming under the cover of darkness so that nobody can see, your, your, you know, these, these interactions we're having, hiding behind we? Which is it, Nicodemus? Are you coming to the light to experience freedom, or do you hate the light? You know, and interestingly enough, we're not given Nicodemus' response. The story's left hanging. Fortunately for us, the Nicodemus is going to appear a couple more times in this book, and we'll get to see what God does with him. But the question just is hanging there. Like, verse 29, if you practice the truth, you come to the light, that your deeds may be manifest as a heavenly rod in God. That doesn't mean you come to God like imperfection. If you come in response to the truth of the gospel and you come to God, let Him like shine light on all of those areas that you've fallen short in. You turn those over to Him, and you're cleansed from your filthiness and from your idolatry, and you experience new life. You know, my fear is is like we, you know, it's pretty comfortable to come here to Creekside. You know, we get to come in, we got coffee, the seats are decently comfortable. Um, You know, I usually don't go too too long. You got DVRs, so you don't even have to miss your favorite TV show. We're all pretty nice to each other. We all acknowledge Jesus at some level. Oh, you must be from God, because nobody could do what you did if it wasn't for that. Have you experienced new life? Have you experienced this change in your heart and your affections that says, like, oh, I'm I desire to like honor the Lord. Now I have this love for His people. I have a love for the truth. I I want to follow Him, and amidst all of my failures. Or are you just playing the religious game? Religious game isn't going to get you anywhere. Well, it is. It's going to keep you in judgment. In fact, like I think there's there's. No, there's no status in life that scares me as much as the religiously dead person because they know all the right answers it's like when you get a like a, an immunization the ones that actually work um, sorry just slipped out I'm a sinner it's when, you, it's when you get an immunization they give you a little bit of the virus so you don't get the real thing you know what I'm talking about Man, I think my fear is that some of you like church-going people have gotten a little taste of the virus and you just think, oh, this applies to somebody else because I'm a nice religious guy. And you've never experienced new life. And Jesus, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You remain in darkness. You remain under judgment. You know that my my prayer, my hope for all of us here is if there's anyone here that sits there, that they experience new life in the Spirit today. You know, the, You know, so if you're here and you've always grown up in church and you're just like, oh, of course I'm a Christian because that's what like the monsoors do or have been Christians since like 1973 or whatever, you know. I've always been a Christian, I was born a Christian, I'm an American, right, like, no, 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 that's not the way it works, Nicodemus could have said that, oh, I'm, I'm a Jew, I was born a Jew, I'm a ruler of the nation of Israel, I'm a teacher, sorry, Nicodemus, unless you have new life from the Spirit of God, you remain in your judgment, You know, John talks about this later on over in First John. Flip over to, well, actually, I think I have it on the screen. In First John chapter 1, starting at verse 5, he says this. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John's saying, like, if, if you are just totally content living in this life of darkness, and you're not experiencing, like, the, the, the conviction of the Spirit that brings you to Jesus Christ, like, don't claim to be a Christian. You're a liar. Because the Spirit of God, like, transforms you from the inside out. He goes on. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So that's why, that's how I know that he's not talking about like walking in the light and practicing the truth means that you live this perfect life because if you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar too. If you're like, oh, I'm nice enough, I'm good enough, I'll be okay. No, 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 no. What he's saying here is like this walking in the light is that, this, that God is like continually revealing ourselves to us. We, we're familiar with that, that rhythm of like, of like the like, kind conviction of the Holy Spirit and him leading us to Jesus and our, confessing our sins to him and, and being washed clean with Him from him. We're walking in the light of the gospel that he's our sufficiency, that he's the one that, was, that bore the curse, that he's the one that deals with our sin. We acknowledge our sin. We let the light expose it so that we can, like, experience life in the Spirit of God. So, Marv, why don't you come up to close this? But, you know, if you're out there and you're, and you're wrestling with this, know that God is patient and he's good and he's kind. Like, Nicodemus, and I'm not going to spoil what happens to him, but we see him a couple of years later. Like, God, Nicodemus was on a journey. There is an urgency to this. And if, but at the same time, like, man, like, think about these things deeply. Think about these things honestly. And if you're being convicted of your sin, if you're being convicted like, oh, yeah, I've just been the religious guy and never truly placed my faith in Christ, Like, confess that to him right now and place your faith in Jesus and for the first time today experience that life. But if you're in that place where you're still wrestling, because like, I'm pretty convinced Nicodemus didn't believe at, the, at that point, and keep pursuing, like understanding these things. Keep investigating because it's only in Jesus that you're released from the curse. It's only in him. All the stuff you look around you in this world, like we can all agree on, this world is broken and jacked up and, and a mess. My heart, apart from the spirit of God, is broken and jacked up and a mess. The things that I do, we can all agree on that. And what Jesus is saying is, is that he is the solution. He's the one that that makes salvation possible. He's the one that's interceded. He's the provision for us to escape the judgment that we deserve. So, Marv, why don't you close us then we'll close us in prayer. Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ who um, redeemed us from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit by faith and Father, the work of the Spirit—we don't know where it comes from, where it's going, but we know its effects, and we know it changes us, and it changes our affections, and our desires, and our hopes, and our and our lives. And and so, Father, I I pray for us on a whole bunch of levels this morning, like for us as a church, that we would like live um, in accordance with the work of your Spirit, uh, representing you well in this world, and um, that we would live in, in light of our new nature and in light of our our new heart that you've given us, and and stop like. Um, living for the things of this world. And, and Father, for those that are here that don't know you, that still sit under judgment, that um, haven't experienced life, I, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would um, open their eyes to understand their need for a Savior, their need for you to bear the curse for them, and that they would experience new life and freedom um, for the first time today. And um, all of that's impossible without you working, Lord. Like We, we can't cause ourselves to be born again. So I just ask that you would work mightily in the power of your spirit this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.